I want to invite you to take your Bible with me to 1 John chapter 2. This morning, 1 John 2, we continue our Prove It series looking through a study through the book of 1 John. And before we dig right in, I want to continue to remind you or encourage you about tonight at 6 o'clock. Wonderful time to really get to know the Franklins, or excuse me, the Reese family a little bit better, ministering in Franklin, Indiana. Um, A good opportunity for us to be able to know better how to pray for them and uh, to just be a really good partner with them. Now, in 1 John 2, we make a little bit of a transition this morning. Uh, The first part of the letter, there's been a lot of important things that John has brought to the attention of the churches that are scattered all uh, throughout Asia Minor. He is giving specific warnings to what is taking place with this conflict. And that's why through the letter, he is bringing to our attention the ability to have great assurance of our personal relationship with God in order to have this prove-it moment of evidence that we can see living out in us and living in and through us. And as we saw from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 2, verse 17, he wrote about these contrasts, light versus darkness. We saw truth and error. We saw obedience and disobedience, things that are temporal and then things that are eternal. And that was a lot of what the message was in the first part of this letter. So now we come to verse number 18 today in our text, and we're going to really see how John turns his attention and offers his readers this assurance in the midst of conflicts. Now, nobody likes conflict. Uh, Brooklyn and I are a lot alike in that way, Um, in intense moments in Disney princess movies. Brooklyn is the one who will stand up and run out of the room. And, and, you know, if my wife didn't laugh at it, I would be right behind her as well. So, I mean, it's just nobody likes conflict. Some of us just have a really major weakness to that and hide under our shell when it happens. So he's giving this assurance to Christians. He's saying conflict is going to arise. It is happening. That's the gist of the letter. He's saying there are false teachers in the last part of the first century, teaching this Gnosticism, which says that the incarnation of Jesus Christ did not exist, so Jesus is not God in man, form, and flesh. The Gnostics said, nope, doesn't exist, and they're trying to tell the Christians in the early church that this isn't happening. And then they were also falsely teaching that that he was not the substitutionary payment for their sins. So because Jesus is not God in man form, well, there was no reason for us to believe that he died on the cross for our sins. Now, these are essential doctrinal truths. As a church like us, these are key, very base foundations that we stand firm on. And we don't waver and we don't even have arguments about it. It's just where we are, it is the very foundational truth. And so John says, let me give you proof. Let me give you assurance through these major conflicts so that you don't have to take it hook, line, and sinker, and you don't have to be afraid of what's taking place. Now, these conflicts that we're going to see throughout the next several chapters of this letter is today the conflict between truth and falsehood, and that's going to be verses 18 through 28. And then in a couple of weeks, we're going to dig into verses 29 all the way through the middle of chapter 3 with the conflict between the children of God and the children of the devil. The third area we're going to look at conflict is in the latter part of chapter number 3, and that is the conflict between love, true love, and hatred. And then wrapping all of that up with these conflicts that he's concentrating on is going to give us the, the conflict between the spirit of God and the spirit of error. 
And so this morning, uh, let's jump into this first conflict that he's going to mention, and let's look together in verse number 18. He says, little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard, that Antichrist shall come. Even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. Now, last time is not referring to just like, guys, just listen, this is the last time I'm going to say this, okay? Uh, we're used to saying that with our kids. All right, listen, last time. Now, that's not good parenting technique, all right? Obey right away, right? We got all that? Here's not obey right away, last time I'm bringing it up. Last time is referring to the latter days. He's saying these are the last times. These are the last days. Now, you're like, whoa, this was last part of the first century. This was almost 2,000 years ago that this is being written. Yeah, well, we're going to see in just a moment the reality of the return of Christ even to John in these moments, in these dark days. And so with great vigor and solitude, he is writing this letter with passion. And he says in verse number 19, they went out from us, these antichrists, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Verse 20, but ye have an unction, an anointing from the Holy Spirit, the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written unto you because you know not the truth, because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he that denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is the Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denies the Son, the same hath not the Father, but he that acknowledges the Son hath the Father also. Verse 24, let that therefore abide in you. Let it connect, let it stay, let it, let it abide in you, which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain, that's the same word as abide, in you, you also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he hath promised us, even eternal life. These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you, deceive you. But the anointing which ye have received of him abides in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, you shall abide in him. This morning we look at a message from this part of the letter that is entitled, The Antichrists Are Here. The Antichrists Are Here. Father, we desperately bring ourselves before your presence and ask you to lead us in this time of study together. I thank you for the worship time, the music that has really touched our hearts. It has directed our minds at you. We can't dare sing any of those lyrics or sit and hear the words being ministered, but have our, our minds flooded with the awesomeness of who you are and the graciousness of who your son Jesus Christ is. So thank you for that truth that we, that we really celebrate today. Father, we need your wisdom. We put our full dependency on you for this time of study and this time of message. Please free us from the distractions that would take our mind away from truth and help us to take steps of growth today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this morning's message is not about the prediction of the Antichrist that may or may not be here on earth as we speak. All throughout history, people have labeled historical figures as that's got to be the Antichrist. That's 
really not my concern and not where this text is directing our attention to today. When John wrote this letter, he stated that there have been many antichrists. You'll see the plural form in verse number 18. And, and these many antichrists, they have risen on the scene since the first arrival of Jesus Christ. His first coming is born in a manger. And so there have been many antichrists who have tried to go against God and against Christ and they have tried to be a substitute for Christ. And so what they have done is they have distracted and taken away the attention away from Jesus Christ. Now, he is saying there have been many. And this is probably written some 90 years after the birth of Christ. And he's saying there have been many antichrists instead of Christ who have been trying to destroy God's church. Now, here we are, 2020, and we know that there have been many anti or instead of Christs that have been in this world. And their goal and direction is to deceive, to dupe, and to destroy the church. They want so badly to, uh, to cause havoc and to cause this destruction. And so we know that Satan, the devil, he has been the architect and ringleader of these anti-God agendas that we see lived out every day around us. And these false teachers, they deny the truth about Jesus Christ, and therefore they are the antichrists, the instead of Christs. So the actions of these antichrists, John is going to really inform the early church about. And I think today we kind of partner alongside, and we see that if in 90 years of life there were many antichrists going against the gospel and against the church, there are probably many even surrounding us today. So let's partner with the early churches of Asia Minor. Let's take this letter, personalize it, though it wasn't written to us. We can come alongside of it and say, wow, what great truth, great reminder that causes me to be vigilant and to be aware that I don't become ensnared and entrapped by what the anti-God and anti-Christ agenda is clearly laid out in our society. So in verse number 18 and 19, we see the actions of the Antichrist as they depart from us. He starts right away with this section and says, little children, a reiteration from verse number 13. Now, this is a small little uh, phrase that will be used often throughout his letter. In verse number 12, little children was a term of endearment. It would have been one that John would have used often just to remind them of his spiritual leadership of his life, maybe the investment that he had made in so many of them. But in this one, it's not the term of endearment. It is actually speaking of the spiritual journey, the spiritual maturity process. And so what he is writing here is one that says, as you remember last week in our study, we had little children, young men, and fathers. And it was not pointing out specific people in the churches. It was saying where you are on your spiritual journey, those who are little children are lacking depth. They're lacking the teaching. They need somebody to pour into them. And so he is saying here with that very thing, this emphatic warning of the looming danger that says, hey, those who are, who are less spiritually mature and therefore the most vulnerable Christians, I want to give you something that you can take note of. And so that's why he addresses this in verse number 18. 
Now notice the urgency by reminding his readers that this is the last time. Again, as we said in the introduction of reading the text, that this is the last hour. It's referring to the present evil age by which we live in. It is going to be the time between the first arrival of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Now remember, second coming is not the rapture where the church goes and Jesus comes to take home his people. No, the second coming will be after the tribulation period in order to come to earth to set up his 1,000-year millennial reign. And so that is going to be the second coming of Christ because even during the tribulation, there will be the Antichrist and there will be many Antichrists who are pushing their anti-God agenda. So this is going to be the time from Christ's birth to the time of his return after the tribulation period. And there are, this is the last days, the latter time. Some of the other New Testament writers would put it this way. Paul wrote to Timothy in his letter. He said, now the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times, you see that, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Happening ever since the birth of Christ will continue all the way until the end of the tribulation. First Peter verse 4, Peter wrote this. He said, but the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And then he wrote again in his second letter. He said, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts or their own passions, their own desires. And then Paul would write into Jude, he would say how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time. Or Jude wrote this, who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. And so here, another good reiteration of some thoughts in the last times. Now, Christians, we've always been living in the last days, the last time, the last hour. We've always been in crisis days. Aren't you just ready for the return of Jesus Christ? Like, I mean, I'm kind of thinking today could be that day, um, maybe next week or, you know, definitely before next Sunday. I don't know. The, the prayer can always be, would you please just come? And, and the prayer is always, or the reward is given to those who look forward and long for the return of Jesus Christ. And so we would find here that we're living in those last days. Now, often we would think, how in the world can this world, this earth, this worldly system continue to function for another 100 years or 200 years? And we would think that there is no possibility. And, and that is not our part to worry about. Uh, we are to live today to the fullest, and we are to live it in a godly manner, and we are to invest and pour our lives into other people. And that's why we have to be gospel-centered, so that not only our homes are gospel-centered and our lives and our church are gospel-centered, but then it becomes the passion and motivation to tell others about the truth of God's grace and the love of Jesus Christ to save them. And so if we truly believe that these are the last days, the last time, then we're going to be motivated to do something about that. Then look at the word antichrist here in verse number 18. He uses, he's the only one, John, that uses this term in his writings. And he is going to use it here to describe a spirit in the world that opposes and denies Christ. He's also going to use this to tell us of the false teachers who represent this spirit it's a person who will head up the final world rebellion against Christ. That's the main Antichrist in verse 18. And then remember this word anti is the word not necessarily against or opposite in the sense because that would be very clear cut. You have Jesus who is good, but then you would have an, an Antichrist 
who live among us who we would say are evil. Yes, in definition form, but they're not going to come across as evil because they're going to come across in such a way that is going to be one that is embracing others, one that they want to help other people so that they can get more people behind their message and fuel their motive. And so this is not against or opposite in the sense, but rather instead of. It's a false substitute. So when we speak of these Antichrist departing from us, they're a, they're a false substitute of who Jesus is. In verse number 18, John references the final Antichrist, which will be during the tribulation, the seven years of tribulation after the rapture of the church. Then he also addresses the plural form of the many false teachers and counterfeits who are troubling the church. And and John is saying about them, they enter the church only to sabotage it. Now, when he says that they depart from us in verse number 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. This does not mean people who were a part of a church and then they, they left for whatever reason or another. It was too hot in there. Nobody's going to leave for that here. Too cold, maybe, all right? Some people are going to say, it's just too cold, all right? So the people that leave for different things, didn't like this, didn't like that, or maybe their spirit was just moved to go somewhere else where they can thrive and grow. And we're like, yeah, go. Whatever the situation might be, that's going to always happen within the local church. But that's not what John is referencing. He's not saying, oh, they just departed. They, they got tired of the pews. They got tired of the chairs. They got tired of the steeple or no steeple or no cross or this cross. And they got tired of these things and they left, right? That's not who John is referencing. Who John is referencing are those who were sabotaging the church. The people who had no depth to them and did not have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. So these are the antichrist. It's it's eventually these, they will depart, leaving a path of destruction, and usually they take some people with them. When you think through the years of many people in here who have been a part of a local church, you know of people that you would say, wow, I remember them leaving the church, not because of the church, the local church, but because of, just because of their spirit against God. And all of a sudden, their life just took a 180, and the person who used to love this and love that and were faithful and true, now they just want no part of the church. And you know what I have found through the years, though I've only been in ministry for a short period of time, what I have learned through the years is that many people want to find excuses of why they turn against God, and the local church becomes the number one blame. Because like, if they can muster up enough hurt from this side against this side, or this class versus this class, or this decision versus this decision, it helps appease their conscience, and they feel better about their decision. And so how many times have you talked to somebody and said, hey, do you go to church? Oh, I went to church when I was a kid. But I'll never forget that preacher. He said this, he said that, and he did this, and he did that. And so I just abandoned and left, and I've never been in church again. Well, how's your personal relationship with God? Oh, I believe in God, and I I pray. Yeah, really? And uh, they got all these things that they want to help themselves feel better, and it's never because of their heart. It's always because of somebody else. Now, Now, does hurt happen in the local church? Yeah, There's a lot of tragic stories that you represent from an abusive under-shepherd, from a church member who was carnal and selfish, from a place who became distracted from the goal of the gospel, from maybe a method of something that went more of its focus than grace in Jesus Christ. So yeah, no doubt there's a lot of hurt that can be represented in a group like this. But the reality is, is you didn't abandon God. You're here today. 
You have found a place that you can grow, a place that has core values, a place that has got motive, vision, desire, a, part, a place that you want to be a part of so that you can have an extension of the gospel to other people's lives, a place that you're going to take spiritual steps of growth in your life. And so here he's speaking not to those who have suffered some hurt along the way. He's speaking of those who came in purposely to sabotage and then left, leaving destruction behind them. This was apparently happening in the churches because John says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. So this is not a reference to these disgruntled Christians. It's rather someone who was trying to sword, uh, who was trying to cause great destruction. Now, we have no reason to fear because sitting here today, we would say again, prove it. What is the, what is the assurance that I have? Because we are genuine children of God, we'll always stay true and faithful to God. Look what Peter wrote, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. He says, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And then Jude wrote this. He says, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory and with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. So a piece of evidence for the Christian life is that we desire to, to be with God's people. I mean, a true piece of prove it, assurance, is that we enjoy being around God's people. That's the church. And you enjoy partnership and fellowship. And, and though your personality sometimes dictates how much of that partnership or to what level you do fellowship with, uh, that is all dictated based on who you are, maybe some insecurities or maybe just some regrets from the past. But whatever that is, you enjoy being together. And here we are gathered, we're worshiping together, we're learning together, and we're growing together. And those who oppose the truth and participate in apostasy, they have no real, no real joy. They have no real salvation. Now, secondly, in verses 20 through 25, we see that... He, they deny sound doctrine. The key question that we want to ask here is, he says, but you have an unction or an anointing from the Holy One, the Holy Spirit, and you know all things. Well, we're going to come to this knowing all things because it doesn't mean we're know-it-alls now, uh, but we are able to discern because of the Holy Spirit in us. We're able to learn and we are empowered have you ever been in a situation where you were having conversation with somebody and you just started to speak truth into their life? And when you were done having that conversation with them of pouring truth into their life, you backed up and you're like, well, where did that even come from? Like, man, I need that pep talk in my own life. And you're like, I don't know where. And somebody says, well, what's that? Uh, where'd you come up with that? And you're like, I, I, don't, I don't even know. I don't even know. That was all God. That was the Holy Spirit working through me. So those are moments in our life with the anointing of the Holy Spirit in us that he empowers us. He teaches us and he guards us and he pushes us, he convicts us, and that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, the antichrists, they deny sound doctrine. And so the question here is, who is Jesus Christ? It's a good question because some people would say, well, he's just a great person. Jesus Christ, he was a good historical person. He was a kind, giving man. He was a brilliant teacher. And these might be the definitions that they would give for who Jesus was. But then the reality comes even against false teaching of the Antichrist, the substitutes of Christ, is that Jesus is God in the flesh. And why is that important? 
Like, why, why do we have to hamper on the fact that Jesus was born of a, a virgin and lived his life as a, a sinless man that was God in man form, tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin? Study the story in John, the beginning of the Gospel of John, as he went to the wilderness and was tempted with what we studied last week, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, and yet he quoted Scripture, overcame the temptations of the evil one, and he became the substitution for us. Because somebody had to pay for sin. Somebody has to pay for our sin. And it's either going to be you and me, or it's going to be a sinless lamb like Jesus Christ. The only option, the only sinless man who could do it, and that was Jesus. And so when you ask that question, John's readers understood the truth. He says in verse 21, I I have not written unto you because you know not the truth, but because you know it. And that no lie is of the truth. He says, I'm not trying to, I'm not giving you new content, new information. You know the truth. And church, we know what we believe. And the reason they and and we too have a clear understanding of these things is because of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. This week, before you encounter a, a difficult situation, would you just pause and pray and ask for God to give you the thought process through the Holy Spirit's work? The Christians, Would you stop before you open your Bible to read and just ask for Holy Spirit to give you wisdom on the content that you're about to read and digest? Before you have conversation trying to resolve conflict, would you ask for the Holy Spirit to go and help you with that? On Wednesday night, we studied the judges and we were looking at Deborah and her pep talk to Barak and the men before they went down the mountain to conquer the enemy of 900 ironclad chariots. As she said, the Lord will go before you. And so that becomes a prayer of ours today, that we would ask the Holy Spirit to go before us, to prepare a heart, to prepare our way, and help us with what we're going to do. Now, we here at Parkway understand that with this sound doctrine, the core values that we've established, they help us to remember that that sound doctrine is important. Um, I don't know, I've got a brochure right here that in the lobby that helped us with our core values. Let me just give you a couple of them that really help us with this. Look to the absolute truth and authority of the Bible. That's a core value. Like that's an identity mark of our church. We diligently seek to demonstrate that we believe God's word by how we act and how we think. So that is a transforming thing in our life. If we take God's word to be absolute truth and it is the authority of our life, then it transforms how we act and how we think. Um, Let me give you another one that kind of helps us with this. Uh, Be gospel-centered in everything. We are motivated by the work of the cross and desire to shape our homes, marriages, families, lives, and church on the gospel. Uh, So these are key things that help us as a church remember that it's very important not to stray or to deny sound doctrine. If you're here today without Jesus Christ, you must ask yourself the question, what do you do with Jesus? Now, you're among many people who have come to a place where they have heard the truth of the gospel. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 10, 17, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so that becomes a reality in people's life. As they hear the truth, it transforms them. And so what will you do with Jesus? Well, hear, hear the truth that Jesus loves you and that he died for you. And then believe that. And you have to believe that by faith. 
This step of faith is something that only you can decide to do. It's nothing I can force you into doing. Our deacons aren't going to stand at the door and put you in a headlock of the noogie until you believe. Uh, might work, though, but I just, just, we can't do that. Uh, so we can't force anybody to believe by faith. You're going to have to come to that grip, to that place. In John chapter 3, verse 15, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Here's a verse 16 and 17, very familiar. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, there's a big difference here in this belief, because there's some people would say, well, I believe in God, or I believe in Jesus, but there's a difference between believing in God and believing God. So believing God means that I take him for his word and for his authority. I believe God who sent his son Jesus to come to this earth and that he would be the ransom for many. I believe God that he gave his son with with great freedom and liberty so that he would give his life for all mankind. There's a believing in God because that helps us with our religious formality. No, I believe in God. I feel good about that. But then on the other side of the coin is believing God, and that's life transforming. So that's not religious functionality. That is, that is like a relationship that transforms everything about us. You know relationships that change you? You know what they look like. Hey, hey guys, men, how many of you in here, you do things a little differently now that you're in a marriage and in a relationship? Any of you doing that way? Dustin, you've been married a year. I know there's a lot that you're doing differently this year than you did two years ago. That's not a bad thing. It's a good thing, all right? So relationships transform us. And by the way, he smiles a lot more than he did two years ago. I don't know what that has to do with, all right? So this relationship in God, this relationship in Jesus is is going to be life-transforming. Now, before I continue, because this is a really important part of the message with the gospel. Parents, let me just remind you, I love teenagers, and I love when they get to sit with each other, and I love that they get to do their thing, but when they're sitting together during church and there's a lot of chatter and laughter, it is so distracting, especially during a moment of the gospel. And so, parents, I'm not going to point out where that is and how that's happening. I'm going to give that over to you for discernment, but know that the word of God is such a very important time for the local church. And know that on a Sunday morning, sometimes God allows us at Parkway to have people in our pew that have never heard about the love of Jesus. And so when we begin to speak of that truth and there's distractions because teenagers can't control their laughter and their conversation, that's not good. So I'm going to leave that in your shoes to handle this afternoon and have those awkward conversations. If you need my help, I'll be available next week, okay? Not today. All right. Confess. Confession. So if we're hearing the word of truth and we're believing by faith, now we have a part of confessing that. And Romans 10 says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Then it says, for with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so those who oppose this message, they oppose Christ, they oppose sound doctrine, they oppose who God is, and there are many out there who oppose this, and they're against us. And so we don't have to get all riled up and fighting them, we just simply love them and pray for them and speak truth in their life. 
But there are going to be the Antichrist who are going to deny this sound doctrine. And then third, verse number 26, he says this. He says, these things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. And so they're going to do everything they can to try to deceive the Christian. Now remember that in John's day, the church was being bombarded with Gnosticism, okay? We, we have beat that bush all the way to the end. But when they denied Christ, it became something that the Christian had to now figure out. The local church was wondering, hmm. So Gnosticism is becoming popular and it's growing. Our culture and society is embracing it. And what they're trying to tell us in the church is that Jesus isn't really God and that he didn't die for our sins. Hmm, okay. Now, do you see how that continues to happen even to this day? I mean, how many of you have conversations at your workplace where people kind of call you a fool because you believe in God alone for salvation? How many of you have family members who, who think you're off your rocker because you attend church faithfully and you've plugged in, you've invested in God's work, and you are passionate about the gospel changing and transforming your life? I mean, some of you experience that on a very regular basis. And what they'll try to tell us is that, ah, you know what? It's all going to work out in the end. I don't believe there's only one way to heaven. I mean, come on. Can it really be just narrowed down to one way? I mean, you're going to tell me that grandma, who was so kind and so loving for all of those years and a part of this and never wanted anything to do with your God, you're trying to tell me she's not going to heaven. And all these conversations are to be had, and they're going to do everything they can to deceive the Christian and take that away from us. So we have to be vigilant. We have to be aware. John's going to write this later in his second letter in verse number uh, seven of the first chapter. He says, for many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. So we know that we have to be careful. Now, first Peter chapter three gives us how we respond to them. When people are trying to deceive us, when they're trying to trick us, when they're trying to cause us to doubt, when they have questions, then here's our response. Peter wrote, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts or acknowledge, acknowledge, render that the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always, being prepared continually always to give an answer. That's a verbal defense, not defensive, but a verbal defense to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you. Now they say, why are you so cheerful? Why do you respond this way? What is the answer going to be? No, we are to be prepared always. We are to be ready continually to give this defense, this verbal defense, an answer. And then notice what the last part of the verse says, to do it with meekness and fear. And this word meekness is the mildness of our disposition. It is strength under control. It is being able to do this with gentleness. How many of you would say that when somebody disagrees with you, it only takes about two or three statements to get your blood pressure up and you kind of start saying things that you're not controlled by the Holy Spirit saying anymore, okay? Anybody like that before? Okay, wives, how many of your husbands are like that, okay, with you? Husbands, how many times your wives doing that? Okay, oh, good, we're getting points, that's good. Everybody's pointing now, all right, that helps, all right? That helps with your marriage, so... Um, I will be available today for counseling for that, okay? So we can work through that. So we talk about this meekness. There's some times where we're just going back and forth with people who disagree with us, and we just kind of get a little in, like, no, you've got to understand. 
and we're very passionate about what we believe, and that's good, except we have to do it with a disposition of, of mildness and, and this gentleness. And then we also give an answer to every man that asks us with fear. Now, some of you are like, okay, I got that down, Peter. I'm, I'm afraid of my, you know, I'm shaking out of my boots when somebody asks me a Bible question. No, this isn't the kind of fear he says to answer with. He's speaking here of reverence. And we are to do this in such a way that it is of great honor that God has called on us in this God moment to give an answer to someone who is asking. So be prepared for that. Don't run from it. Don't shy away from it. And it's okay if you have to say, you know what, let me, let's come back to that at a later time. Uh, let me do some research on that. Let me find out some good answers. So we have to remember, though, with these antichrists is that Satan is not an originator. He's a counterfeiter. And so he's going to do his very best to try to mess up the simplicity of our devotion to Christ. We should be taking steps this week of spiritual renewal, but Satan is going to come in with every element he can to distract us from that. Uh, he's going to try to cause us to doubt in the sufficient, sufficiency of Scripture. I'm thankful that we hold in our hands the Word of God, and I'm thankful that it is alive and it is powerful, and we can study it and memorize it and meditate it. But the enemy is going to distract us from even having God's Word as a part of our life. They try to confuse us about key doctrines. And how many conversations go back and forth about these doctrines and arguments get caused and stirred up. And, and that is why we find what we believe and why we believe it and we stand firm on that. But we understand that they cannot take away the security that we have in Jesus Christ and his salvation. They can't take away the victory that we're going to experience. Or they cannot take away the final say. They cannot take away the very fact that we are abiding in Christ and as John 10 reminds us as the good shepherd, no man can pluck us out of the Father's hand. And so we will face the antichrists. They're going to be in your workplace tomorrow. They're going to be in your neighborhood this week. Some of you rub shoulders with them on a normal basis as family members. And whoever they might be in your life that are trying to go against things that are godly, you just have to be guarded, vigilant, and geared up for this. So John's second letter is going to give further warning about the dangers of the Antichrist. And I believe it's safe to say that John took this very seriously. And it is not something that died off in the first century. When Gnosticism fade away, it's not like the Antichrist went with it. The false teachers are all around us. And so it's imperative that we take note and rise to the challenge and be on guard. And so they come disguised in so many ways. And they're not always disguised very well. But sometimes they come and just mingle in with us, or sometimes they're very clearly marked. And yet as Christians, though they're not disguised, we're kind of like, well, we're going to be intolerant of that. We can be fine. Or we're going to be tolerant of that. We can be fine with that. So we begin to rub shoulders with them. We begin to mingle with them, and we get to become more like them. And so they're going to show their true colors when they depart from us, deny sound doctrine, and they try to deceive us. So the warning for us today, the Antichrist are here, let's be prepared for that.